0: Welcome, everyone, to the House of Hustle podcast on Sports Radio 810. We are presented by our friends at Charlie Hustle. I am your host, Jared Sutton. I'm joined, as always, by Stephen St. John. We are two games in to the NBA Finals, and uh, we have a series, 1-1. Very exciting. We talked uh, this morning on the Border Patrol a little bit uh, about Game 1 and, and Game 2. It's a fun series, Stephen. It's been a lot of fun to, to just kind of Game 2 finally taking that, that twist that we wanted to see Miami even the series in a very competitive, uh, very thrilling game too, and here we are, one-one. I'm a moron. <laughs>
1: That's what we're gonna start. And welcome to, bo- welcome to I'm the welcome to the podcast, big dummy. Because I watched Game One, and I thought you I know, think everybody
0: felt this, by the way, not just you. Just uh, to- you know,
1: I had done all these mental gymnastics, looking at the series on paper, to to try to to justify why I thought this game, the series would go six or seven games. And then we get to the actual game, and it played out. It looked like a, a one seed and an eight seed. And I know that the Heat had that run where they got it down to 10 points, but, I mean, 10, whatever. Mm-hmm. It just – it was never – it was almost like, you know, Denver was keeping little bro, little brother at arm's length, and, oh, that's cute. You got it within 10 points. Now we're going to put you away. And I'm thinking this – does not look like a series that's going to go six or seven games, and so then I I thought, man, this is just going to be a letdown. Denver's too good, and look, and that very well could have been the case because Denver breezed through the Western Conference, and they're they've they've been a they've been one of the best teams all year long. They've had a guy that should be a three time MVP probably and the best player in the league, and they've got stars all over the floor and everything else. And so, then after, after game one, I'm thinking, yeah, the writing was on the wall. I'm just, I was just stupid and trying to, to change the narrative to fit what I wanted to see. I go to game two, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to happen, but the Heat win in Denver, and they hand Denver their first home loss of the, uh, of, of the playoffs. And so, I'll admit it, I was wrong. Yeah. I, it, took, it took me one game to give up on the Heat. But you're back. I'm back now. You're I'm back. Back, I'm back on the bandwagon, but like, and you say I, I was not alone in that assessment, right? Right. I mean, what did you think after game one? You're like, oh, man, this doesn't, maybe this isn't the best matchup in the world.
0: Right? Yeah, I, I thought from, again, I look at it from now, a league perspective of just, you know, you want the interest to be there uh, for the series, uh, be just because of, I think there was that, you know, Lakers-Celtics uh, chatter going into the, you know, the conference finals, so. Um, the fact it's it's Denver and Miami. Um, you just wanted some some sort of storyline and to really carry this series and after game one. And I, I you know, I said this this morning. Game one was, I think Miami struggled with the altitude. I, I really think that was a little bit of a problem early on in the in game one. Um, Denver played great and they played with a level of fearlessness of that they've played throughout the playoffs. And uh, Jokic was, you know, they were just not not afraid of the moment. Well, then Miami comes out in game two and 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 really, after being smacked early in game one, they they really took the fight to Denver in game two and made significant adjustments from from Eric Spoelstra to his lineup and uh, to just a lot of um, just from a play call standpoint, offense, defense, everything looked a little bit different, uh, and there were some tweaks there that I really think made a difference in game two. So, the point being. In this type of series, in the NBA Finals, every game has a different plot twist, if you will, to the story. Because coaches are so intertwined with making adjustments. And that comes from personnel. We saw with Miami starting Kevin Love. Um, Denver, we'll, we'll see what happens here. Because Denver played Christian Brown off the bench in, in Game 2 and had to go to him um, really, for defensive purposes, and and Christian Brown gave him some good minutes. Had a couple buckets, had a nice dunk um, in transition. So it just both these coaches and, and Mike Milner and Eric Spoelstra, they have a solid bench and they can go deep into that bench. I think Miami has some really good experience, NBA Finals experience, with Kevin Love um, in the in the equation here. Kyle Lowry, um, you know, another veteran presence that's been in the finals, been in these moments, won a championship. That's what that's what makes this series fun. Now is you know, Miami was is still the underdog. Denver is still the favorite. But I think this is the first time, to your point about Denver kind of breezing through the Western Conference, this is the first time they're really facing adversity. And Miami, you know, they're a team that has won the most games by five points or less in the NBA all season. So they like these type of games that are possession by possession, that are kind of mucked up, that – are games that, you know, maybe down the stretch um, can can really have, whether it be lulls or a back-and-forth or games where, you know, it's so physical. Miami loves that. That's what their kind of DNA is, um, and everybody's bought in on that side of it. So Miami just, I, to me, it, goes, it comes back to their culture. It comes back to guys at Max Struess who got off to a horrible game one, had an over. Uh, Gabe Vincent was really good. Duncan Robinson was very good. These role players really matter in this type of series, and I think it's going to be what dictates who wins this series.
1: Duncan Robinson went off, off at the beginning of that fourth quarter, and I do want to can't mention, beat a shooter. Can't uh, beat a shooter. Well, but still, he was. I mean, and he was, but he was even driving to the basket. Yeah, he too. was. He was. They couldn't, they couldn't guard him. Yep. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, our wonderful sponsor is Charlie Hustle. You can get uh, all of uh, what they have at charliehustle.com. Vintage and swag. I, I demand this right here. Oh, my gosh.
0: I was just about to ask you, what is this right here? My goodness. Let's, See that, people? <laughs> Let's, this is, this is, is a Premier. Nick Bolton
1: mm. crazy tiger t-shirt. Nick Bolton has the arms of a tiger. With the tiger. And he's running the football like he was in the Super Bowl. Man. Have you seen that shirt? I have
0: not. This is a first. Here's the deal, Charlie Huston. Why don't
1: I have this shirt? That's a very simple question I have for you. There's
0: always there's always new, fresh, vintage swag they come out with. They he's got a
1: tiger tail. They always got outdo the themselves. The arms of a tiger. Yeah.
0: God, that's for and you it is the, it is the Super Bowl run to the house, which he should have had maybe two in the Super Bowl. That's but fine. that's another that's for another I'm just podcast. Telling
1: you, if you love Mizzou, you get that Nick Bolton Crazy Tiger T-shirt. Let's go. And you get the biggest Gosh. size they got and give it to me because i have I'm 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 uh, big boned. <laughs> they call me thick T H I C C. Thank you. Charlie Hustle's got sides for everyone. Well, CharlieHustle.com. So thank you to Charlie Hustle. Back to Duncan Robinson. The Nuggets, I'm betting if they were thinking, what's the recipe we can lose, it wasn't Duncan Robinson exploding to start the fourth quarter.
0: No. Right? No, it wasn't. Uh, it also probably wasn't Kevin Love's. I don't think they were ready for Kevin Love going plus 20 in 22 minutes, uh, which is a huge part of of what uh, Eric you know adjustments were. Gabe Vincent hitting four threes, um, you know, really really across the board. Just them, Max and Gabe hitting four threes was big. Duncan Robinson in a couple threes, but like you said, he you know Duncan Robinson was four or five from the field in seventeen minutes, uh, really gave him good minutes. He was he is still a mismatch on defense, but that's where again the adjustments come in, where Miami switched up and went more to a zone look um, in the second half and particularly in that fourth quarter uh, that got Miami back into the game, uh, being down to start the fourth. Jimmy Butler on the bench and they were great and it, it I think their defense and the the changing of that defense from if it was a 2-3 to a 1-3-1 one, one, to a matchup zone uh, they just kept showing different looks to Denver and a lot of that being you know w- when you think of a zone and you're guarding space and you're guarding a designated area um Miami did a really good job of of bringing a defender on a on the empty side of the zone to the nail at the free throw line and it really gave Miami problems it took away the short role that Jokic lives in uh, with that pick and roll with Jamal Murray and then the changing of Kevin Love um, guarding Aaron Gordon and, and that allowed Jimmy Butler to guard Jamal Murray it's all about matchups when we come down to this series but I also think it, it comes back to pace on offense too where that's where Duncan Robinson Max Strus, gave Vincent had opportunities the movement was good. Jimmy Butler was attacking more and kicking at, at the right times. He got his guys' shots, and that's what you want. Bam Adebayo's been been pretty good in these first two games, particularly in game two. I thought he was great uh, in just trying to guard Jokic as best he could. He's the best matchup for Jokic um, that they have in terms of trying to guard him. And you're going to have to give up something, but clearly you know Miami did a nice job of taking away the passing of Jokic, making him a scorer which was a topic, you know, after after Game 2 um, with Spolstra. But don't ask him about that. Don't no ask him about that. that. But it, it's just those adjustments really matter, and you saw it on both ends of the floor. And Look, Denver, I don't think – I think when they're going into Game 3, there, there is a moment of, okay, we gave up 16 points really off, bad execution on our end, bad communication, fouling jump shooters, bad decisions. KCP had a couple uh, in that stretch in that fourth quarter that really allowed Miami to, to get back in the game and then ultimately take the lead. Uh, but they're kicking themselves. They had a good look, too, that final possession. Jamal Murray getting a clean look at a three, uh, which was, you know, you, you we always talk about fouling up three. You know, how does that look for, for different coaches? And uh, Miami played it out, and here we are 1-1 one, one, going back to Miami for game three. And that's what's really exciting for me is to see, okay, what does Mike Malone do now? You know, what what's his adjustment? And I think Michael Porter Jr. has to be very, you know, very not – I don't think he has to be, you know, 25 points and 12 rebounds, but 3 of 17 right now shooting in the finals. He hasn't been that efficient, and he's not been as active as we've seen Michael Porter. He's more standing, and yes, he's a jump shooter, but you'd like to see him just more active and and more engaged as a cutter and and spacer and, and just moving a little bit more to help Jokic, to help Jamal Murray. They need his scoring, and he's got to be a little bit more efficient, um, similar to what Gabe Vincent and Max Struess and Duncan Robinson showed uh, in that game too to really propel because margin for error right now is so slim. It's a make-or-miss league, and a team that has their role players step up and, and make some plays and make shots uh, I think is is ultimately going to be a, a big piece of who wins the series.
1: Okay, I like asking this question, a philosophical question uh, when it comes to basketball because uh, there were people complaining on both sides at the end of the game, the end of the game sequence. Uh, before Jamal Murray took his shot at uh, a game-tying three. And so, as the broadcast crew was talking about uh, what was happening, they were wondering out loud if Denver was going to take a timeout to set something up, and also if Miami was going to try to foul and prevent Denver from getting an open look at three to tie the game. Well, neither uh, happened, and they just went with the flow of the game, and Jamal Murray probably got a better look than he should have to tie the game. It didn't go in and Miami wins. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, your philosophy, what do you do in that situation? If and it's obviously hindsight's 2020, but going into it, when you're watching it, what are you thinking? Are you are you are you yelling for Denver to call a timeout? Are you yelling for Miami to uh to try to foul? and prevent Denver from getting a look at three. Take me through that end-of-game sequence because I do think it's very interesting to hear different people, all good basketball minds, have very different answers.
0: Yeah, because I think both situations, whether you're looking at it from the Denver angle of calling a timeout or you're looking at it from the Miami angle of do you foul, so much of it is based off of the flow of the game and and where the game stands at that point. Um, I think you can look at it from, first, the Denver standpoint. Calling a timeout, at times, I agree with calling the timeout because if you're if you're out of rhythm or out of sync or you haven't had two, three, four good possessions or maybe you've had some turnovers or you haven't got the ball to your best player, um, there's a reason to call a timeout to get on the same page to call to dial up something that can get you a good look. but and this goes back to like what Phil Jackson used to say back in the day in the Jordan you know those Jordan years was you know, there are times where, if you get a rebound or you get a steal, like Jordan getting the steal on Carl Malone, right, in the Jazz series, and it's been well-documented Phil Jackson had an opportunity to call time timeout there, and he didn't because... The rhythm of the game, the possession prior, Michael hits a jumper, and they didn't want Utah to have a chance to have their own timeout to set their defense and maybe give a different look. So there's a reason maybe why you don't call a timeout. Jordan pushed uh, off also. Uh, yeah, well, that's a that's a you know n- time for another n- yeah, just a little bit of an extend extended right. It would have been an offensive foul at that point, but but with Miami, I would have fouled up three, and I think and I said this this morning with you, Stephen, is there's there's moments where. That can, that can be triggered of, okay, we're going to set our defense here. When the ball comes in, there's a moment where you can foul because players are so smart that they can bait you into fouling when you shouldn't foul. And so there's a time and a period where you go foul up three. Then if, that, if you can't get a foul or, or you know, something happens, and we've seen it all the time, anything can happen in these games, at in games, where if you don't feel comfortable as a player and you've missed your opportunity to foul, then you play it out. There's there's two scenarios there going into that final final play and coaches can put on the foul and say we're gonna foul here they can say nope we're playing it clean um, and some coaches will say we're gonna foul in these two three seconds if you can get there if you can't and and it's not a situation where you where you're in a, in a spot to foul don't do it and play it out and I think that's somewhat what they did um, late in that game I don't I don't think Miami was was going to foul I think where Spolstra saw his defense in that fourth quarter. They were so good with that zone, and they were so good changing their defense, and I think they had Miami in a good place where there was some doubt there of what's Miami going to show us here that they just played it out and, and didn't foul, and it all ultimately paid off and, and paid dividends, and now we're 1-1. So.
1: Okay, so the next question is, was just just a perfect storm of things happening that allowed Miami to sneak out of Denver with a win, and Denver's going to make their adjustments? Denver's got their bad game behind them, and they're going to go on, go on, and uh, roll on and win this series in five or six. Or do you think Miami? I mean, it's it's dumb that I'm even asking this, considering it's tied one game apiece in the finals. Do you think Miami really has a legitimate shot of winning this series?
0: They do, they do. I think it's a it's a series. I still think Denver's the favorite. Um, I. Again, I, I, I hate putting the mark on oh, how many games it's going to go because every game you could there, – there's just so many things that happen in a game, in an NBA game, especially in the fourth quarter, um, that can dictate the series. And it's, like I said, make or miss, but a lot of it is attention to detail and adjustments. But um, I think with Miami there's two things that really jump out to me uh, in game two. Number one was they gave up a 40-14 to 14 run, and there were multiple times where I thought Denver's going to win this game, and Miami found a way to be resilient, come back, multiple times to win game two on the road. Denver hasn't lost at home since March. Miami hasn't won in Denver Denver since 2016. I mean, it's been a long time since Miami has won a game in Denver alone, and they win game two in the NBA finals to make it 1-1. That's a big deal, and that's a big confidence boost going back home. So that, to me, was, was a big deal. We talked about the adjustments, right? Kevin loves starting. He was plus 20 in 22 minutes. Um, Aaron Gordon was just punishing mismatches in game one. That adjustment was very big in in game two in terms of guarding uh, because Jimmy Butler had to guard uh, Jamal Murray 35 times in the half court compared to just four times in game two. I think that really mattered. Not to say Jamal Murray had a bad game, but I I just think Jamal Murray had to fight for everything. Nothing was easy for Jamal Murray. That adjustment was big. And then the pace. Um, So much about basketball now is about pace, rhythm, flow, You can play up tempo. You can slow things down. And Miami, in that fourth quarter of Game 2, the pace was at 78. That's the lowest pace for an NBA game in the playoffs thus far. To me, Miami slowed the game down so much in the half court, and their spacing was spread out, so their ball screen action was higher. Uh, Their spacing and shooters to the corners, there was so much more open space For Jimmy Butler to attack, which I thought he had way more aggressiveness getting downhill and making passes. He had nine assists in game two and was really trying to get his guys involved. And they were able to make shots. And then he closed the game in the fourth more. So the energy shift in that fourth quarter of game two, there was a five-minute window there where I thought the game and the series changed. And I think that's where Miami's now got some confidence where they can go back home and think, we're 1-1. We're in our own building. Now the pressure's on Denver to adjust and win a game and steal a game in either Game 3 or Game 4. Now it's a series. But again, you cannot write off Denver because Jokic, what he, Jokic sees the game of what do I need to do in this game? Do I need to be a passer? Do I need to be a rebounder? Do I need to be aggressive to score? And I think, not to say that he wasn't confident in his guys in Game 2, but he saw what Miami was doing defensively, and he changed his, his approach, and he became a scorer. What does Jokic do now, right? Because now Denver's 0-3, and it's that stat that's been used so much. They're 0-3 when Jokic goes, scores over 40, which is crazy to, to think about. But to me, um, this is such a small margin for error. Execution, basketball IQ, coaching, those three things are so, so huge in this series. And it's going to be these games, and it's going to be exciting for fans. If, it's, if we're having games and less than five points to dictate a game— that's what's going to make this series a lot of fun, and Miami has been in the, those moments so many times. For Denver, they've never really been tested in these playoffs. They've blown out teams. They, they've had a pretty easy road to the finals outside of a couple games against the Suns. Now they're being tested. How are they going to respond? And that's what makes this, this series so intriguing now.
1: I've asked you this a couple of times. But now so To me, if Miami loses Game 2 uh, in Denver and they're down 2-0, they don't have nothing to lose. Then maybe they need to change the dynamic of the series. You know, Tyler Hero's healthy. They drop him in there, right? Yep, yep. I think it's a more difficult decision when it's tied one game apiece. You just saw your team go into Denver and win that game, and there is the idea, even though he's a good player, that you could upset the rhythm, upset the rotation. Yep. And, I mean, you know, Duncan Robinson, does he do what he does if Tyler Hero's available, right? Right. There's, there's, we, we all talk about how there's a ripple effect. And so, based on them winning in game two, and there are reports that Tyler Hero did have still some swelling and soreness after he worked out yesterday. Do you? And, and he's even said he doesn't want to upset the rhythm. Do you? Do you, do you hold off? It says, is it like break glass in case of emergency? Uh, do you see how things go in game three if he's available, or is it? He's available, and we're going to get him back in there.
0: Yeah, I I think it's a question, first off of, and this is big with the Heat and really for any team, is the conditioning level is is really important. If you're going to throw a player that has been out for so long into a playoff game, let alone a finals game, um, that conditioning level has to be uh, in a very good spot where you're putting him in a game and he feels comfortable, Playing both ends of the floor, getting up and down. Um, if it's spot minutes, you know, if it's 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 a, a restriction on minutes, fine, so be it. But that's something that the player, the coach, and ultimately Pat Riley too, they got to be on the same page. Of you know, is it and the medical staff most importantly, of is Tyler Hero ready to go? Is there something where anything could happen where it sets him back? But obviously, this is the finals, and you're you're talking about championship. And I think if Tyler Hero is is okay to go, and he can make some shots, most importantly, because it is the hand uh, with the shooting piece of it, if he's healthy and ready to go, and he's gone through a workout, and he's gone through pregame, and he feels like he can go, have him be available. If anything, it, it, it does throw off maybe the Nuggets game plan, most importantly. You know, there's... and I. I think it's a little bit strategic too, of Tyler Hero saying, "Well, you know, I don't want to mess up the rhythm." And all of a sudden, you could see him in Game Three, Game Four, or maybe Game Five, where all My of a sudden, hand is sore. Yeah, exactly. There's some, there's some, you know, some game strategy here that's coming into effect using the media. I think a little bit, but uh, ultimately, make sure he's right um, and make sure he's he's able to go. And I, that to me is is, um, you know, you go back to just teams in the finals. The intensity level is so high. Your attention to detail is so high. I I think, yes, a player can throw off a rhythm a little bit, but if it's in spot minutes and really where this team is at right now, like Caleb Martin was so good in the Boston series. um, He's been a little banged up. I think what he did in in the Boston series, kind of a little bit of an anomaly, but he's still such a big-time player. With adding a player like Tyler Hero, he's a bona fide score shooter, and he's he's in a little different conversation than Caleb Martin and Max Struess and Duncan Robinson, Mac, you know th- th- those Gabe Vincent, th- those guys are are big pieces to this Miami team. But Tyler Hero was a top three scorer of for for this team, so it's a little bit different of a conversation of can Tyler Hero play? Is he healthy? Is he ready to go? If so, use him in the right ways. And and obviously, Eric Spolster has been down this road several times, so he's going to play that card how he plays it. And and I do think it's definitely a talking point right now in this series. All right, let's uh, switch topics to
1: the NBA draft that's coming up on June 22nd. Uh, and, of course, your work uh, as a scout for, for the New Orleans Pelicans, you put a lot of legwork and a lot of time into scouting prospects. So I'm not going to ask you about specific players or what, uh, what the Pelicans are going to do, unless you'd like to announce the pick right now. I don't know <laughs> how you could do that because there are several picks ahead of you. But tell me what this is like now until the draft for someone in your role and what the process will be like is everyone comes together and decides what the game plan is going to be for that uh, 14th overall pick coming up on the 22nd.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, right now I, I, I head to New Orleans um, later this week. I'll be there through the draft. Um, we've just started up player workouts. A lot of teams will bring guys in, uh, have either individualized workouts um, or more of a group workout type setting where it's more of a three-on-three or two-on-two type of setting where you can compete a little bit um, and obviously, the agents are very much a part of you know their their player and their prospect and, and their you know their client of putting them in positions uh, for teams where they they think their 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 uh, agent their their prospect is in that specific range. Um, for me personally, right now, it's more um, diving back into tape on different guys. We have a good feel of the, of all the players that are in the draft by now. You've seen them, you've studied them, you've gone to games, uh, you've been at the combine. Now you're seeing them in your own group workouts, which is good. And you're more almost eliminating certain guys of where you think their range is um, adjusting to your team board and your individual board of, of how you rank guys. Um, But I think also a big part of this is preparing for those conversations you're going to have as a staff, meaning diving back into all of the Intel you've gathered, not just this year, but over the course of years, uh, dating back to when a prospect was in high school, familiarizing yourself with the player and the person and the background and everything that goes into who you might be selecting to bring into your organization and who are you going to invest in. Um, so I'm studying that right now a lot. That's pretty much a big part of my week this week is just making sure I know all these guys inside and out. And then when we get together as a group, it's more me, uh, and our other scouts really starting to have those conversations of who we like, who fits us best. Um, you know, the talent level we discuss, obviously, but we also dive into every aspect of the prospect. And that can be, you know, medical testing. That can be everything from, you know, how he tests in, in our own market with explosiveness and athleticism and strength and everything with our strength staff and our performance staff, but also, you know, our sports psychologist doing a lot of those testing uh, of the mental health side. Um, that That is a big part of the evaluation process as well. So there's still so much, going on right now um, but you're fine-tuning everything and you're getting your group thought uh, of what the team board's going to look like on draft night because when you go into a draft you're ready you're prepared and then whatever adjustments happen, uh, whatever you know surprises are there you can adjust to the board and work towards the board as they always say. Um, and then you're obviously having that that dialogue during the draft of going back to what your meetings were leading into the draft and that's what this process is right now it's a fun it's exciting time but it's all the work you've done over the course of your of the year it hits right now um, when you go into what we call our Super Bowl so it's a big big week and um, we're two weeks away so here okay. we are
1: so this is like uh, you know probably dumb questions but for people that, that aren't aware of of the process of what you do so do you have you have like a group of players that you rank. Do you have like a certain score that you give to players or a grade? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, how do you like 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 when you present this, or how do you how do you separate, how do you organize the different prospects yeah. based on what you've seen and how you've evaluated
0: them? Yeah. So we we as a regional scout, I cover specific leagues. Um, you know, I'm Big Twelve, Big Ten, and oversee a lot of the SEC as well, Missouri Valley. Um, but. So it's it's not like I'm I'm technically in the Midwest and we have West Coast and we have an East Coast scout but you're you're mostly covering your leagues and then you're 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 talking about all players like you have to have you know you have had to seen all these guys at the end of the day but then when you break it down into your conferences that's who you have primary responsibility on and you're really supposed to know the ins and outs of the background of the intel of the information of you know what the type of person is that you're bringing in the family background um, anything pertaining to you know. Stops along the way now with transferring being so you know at the front of college basketball right now. That and you're
1: talking to coaches, yes, you're plenty talking to support staff, your
0: high school coaches, uh, academic coordinators, no. strength coaches. No. You're going, you're going deep into the weeds. And no, I, I no. told you, I told you this um, probably you know about three weeks ago, a month ago. I was on campus visits, so you're you're kind of fine tuning that that final information gathering where you're talking to a lot of people in person on specific guys that we call primary.
1: Can you tell like like when a high school coach, or I mean, can you tell when he's like, yeah, telling you the truth, or where he's, he's you know what I mean? Yeah, like cause I'm, I'm, I'm sure, sure, that these guys with the have, have reached out, and say, hey, you know, can yeah, you maybe not mention this, but I mean, you, you've got to be, you've got to have a BS, uh, uh, finder there, right? That's right. When you can, you know, absolutely, you can tell if you're getting the real story about something. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's all about credibility, right? Right. Um, and some of these high school coaches, you know, maybe they this is the first time they've had someone. You know that is is this this high? You know, in you terms think of they it. want them to get they want them so to they
1: get, get drafted. Yeah, hey, I coach the first round pick. I don't yeah. know about you, but
0: I think especially with like the high school side of it, they can give you just good stories of you know what the the prospect and what the player was like in in a classroom in a high school classroom. You know what? How were they with the student body? Um, you know. What interests did they have in yeah, high school? I'm
1: so glad that union broadcasting <laughs> didn't do any of this
0: <laughs> right. when investigating exactly. that background. And and, and I I, did, I did. my brother always gives me a hard time like, so are you kind of like a you know a private investigator? And I it's not to, you know, th- you know, write off a guy off anything because we were all seventeen, eighteen years old. So it's not it's just knowing, it's just being aware. You don't want to be caught all off right. guard.
1: I'm not asking for specifics, but have you ever gone and found something out in high school from a coach or someone that said, you know what? Can't draft him or that's that's yeah. taking him out of consideration.
0: Yeah. It's happened before. Uh, so I mean yeah. so but but it was an extreme case. Right. It was an extreme case. But
1: the, so but the point is it's just not busy work. Right. There
0: is right.
1: Or have you on the other side of the coin, have you been maybe like lukewarm or on the fence about a prospect, but then you go and hear the way a coach talks about him or former teammates or support staff or what he was like and you think, you know what? Man, these intangibles make me look at him a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, so I, I think it's why you have to have a lot of different sources. You can't just, you know, hitch your wagon to one person, you know, of, of if it's the high school coach or the college head coach or the college video coordinator. Like, you want to have a lot of different sources and a lot of different input, and then you try to find the consistency. Of, like a little notepad. We, like oh, them, I, like yeah, yeah, lines of yeah I mean, we, yeah, you have a database, and, and I save – All my all my stuff is is you know the information I've gathered, and then I go back and read through not just everything I have, but everything our staff has got too. Our GM, our assistant GM, other scouts, and you and you really and it's great because you get different thoughts and perspective, and that's what's so great about meeting as a group is there's things that are brought to me that I might not know that might be something that you know one of our West Coast scouts that has a better relationship and has known a coach over several years that maybe they gave him stuff that is a little bit different that we haven't heard, or maybe that coach just had a bad experience and that's one angle of this. And there's a lot of different reasons behind why that coach didn't maybe like or, or didn't, you know, gel with, with one of their, his, his players. You have to look at everything and take everything and have an open mind. Most importantly, you to me, I think the, the, where you can really be wrong on a guy is when you go too far into the intel. When it sways your mind and the like to to what you said earlier the kid's eighteen years old right. and 19 years old and what is maybe you didn't have any sort of leadership because, well,
1: some of these kids you're drafting are 19 years exactly. old. So and then, it, are you going back to like 16 years old I mean because they're they're nineteen anyway. yeah exactly
0: I mean, well and, and I think it's what's well, about the NBA draft that's so different than the MLB draft and the NFL draft and some of these other drafts is, in baseball, yes, you have to. You can draft guys out of high school. It's a little bit different if they're going to go to college or not, um, but you're putting them in a minor league system right away, and they know they're going to a minor league mm-hmm. system. With us, it's different in that we could be drafting a guy that's 19 years old that has been in college for one year or been out of high school for one year that is eligible, um, but you know they don't want to go to a, a G League system. They want to come in right away, and you have to kind of – Really weather the storm, and, and you. it's ha- why you have to know everything about the player and how they think, how they're wired, who's in their inner circle, who's their influencers. You mentioned the intangibles. The intangibles, are, it's a big word because there's so many factors that are under those intangibles that you just have to know because when your coaches, when, I, when we have, you know, and we do Zooms with our coaching staff, when they're asking you questions because they don't know anything about these guys from just what we've seen on the floor and what we know – we have to be able to tell them what's going on. We have to be able to tell our our player development staff about these guys so they're aware that when there's that handoff, when you draft the player, and then all of a sudden they're in their bill, they got to know everything. And they're going to go back and look through all the work I've done to get up to speed. And that's what makes this process a great process and there's so much involved in it because it starts from when they're 16 years old. It starts from when I talk to that academic coordinator and it goes all the way through to when our head coach is asking about it on draft night. That's what makes it interesting.
1: Okay. So like I get asked this question about, you know, like what coaches do you enjoy interviewing the most? Mm-hmm. Who's the, who's, who's the guy that uh, is, is the best guest to be on a show and what people don't like it. You know what I'm going to say? Bill Self, he's mm-hmm. he's always great to have on the show, mm-hmm. and yep. then in and you and you just yeah it, you know as, as a Mizzou fan it, it, it pains me, but then you talk to him, and then you think oh well, well this is one of the reasons why it's such a great recruiter yeah I mean he just he he, he know he's 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 got that it factor yep. whatever it is right yep same thing like and and you'll love this like whenever we've had Bob Huggins on the show you know you're gonna get great answers. And a great interview. And mm-hmm. it's gonna be fun, right? And so maybe uh same question to you, like who who's who what what coach has been maybe the most enjoyable, like a college coach, just to go talk to, or just uh, you know, open to having you at practices or someone you really enjoy being around, maybe learn the most around in your role as a scout. Mm-hmm. Is there is there when you when you see the oh, I'm gonna go here, I know I'm gonna He's going to be open. He's going to be honest. This is going to be good. I'm going to learn some stuff. It's going to be great to go to his practice. Like, who do you look forward to meeting up with? I first? mean,
0: it's tough. So, I mean, there's – first of all, I'm, I'm very lucky and fortunate because I, I think there's a lot of guys that I could say. Um, so, it's tough to just say one Um, because you – We can say you, a couple of Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I go back to, like, you know, when, when you have coaches that you've now built trust and relationships over four to six years – I've been in the league now six years – um, even dating back before that I, norm roberts comes to mind at kansas uh, i talk to him all the time and you know we text he's call good. he's good he, he's, he's, he he's a regular he's guest on the show he's, he's good he's great i'm so happy he had an opportunity you know when coach self was out a little bit to, to be a head coach and you're right like coach self is um he's real and he's not going to lie that's the thing he's going to be up front and he's going to talk and, and he he's going to keep it real and he's like that as on the floor with his guys and he's like that off the floor and i think that's what everybody respects about him is there's no sugarcoating things. Uh, he's going to be keep it out. He's going to keep it as is. And he's, he's the same guy. And I, I, I appreciate that about coach. Sell. there's other guys like Chris Holtman at Ohio state, the head coach um, have a great relationship with him. Right. Uh, we drafted EJ Liddell, um, St. Louis kid and, and, and coach Holtman is the best uh, to deal, to, to deal with. He's an open door. Um, you know, every time I go to Columbus, they treat me with such great hospitality, and a lot of these schools do. So it's I'm just giving you a right. a name, but I think it's really great when you draft the player um, from the program, and you're able to have that conversation with the head coach and, and know we're ta- he, they know we're taking their guy, and it's been talked about. And I'm the you know direct guy communicating with the coaches on draft night because um, he's in my area, and then when you select that player being able to, you know, hear from the coaches and, you know, kind of see the reaction that they're sending you content because they're with the player at the time. That that's really meaningful because it, it really kind of brings it all together. We're now, you know, me and Coach Holtman have such a great relationship because I, I took one of his guys, you know, and that or we took one of his guys, I should say. But I was a big part of that that process. That's when it's it kind of comes full circle. But John Jacus at Baylor, um, we talk all the time as well. He's a terrific assistant. Um and I, I, I has been a huge part of of that staff at Baylor uh, runs a lot of their offense, um, and, and you know you talk about Baylor's offense over the years, guard heavy. John Jacobs is at the forefront of that, um, so he would be at the top of the list. Um,
1: I bet Jerome Tang's fun to deal with. Jerome Ed Tang is fantastic. That, that whole
0: staff you know, at Kansas State, uh, by the way, that that uh, Kevin Sutton, who was a prep school head uh, head coach back in the day, um, you know he's he's so good. Um you know, that 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 staff. Um, you know, Ulrich, who was at Texas, um, great assistant coach, great recruiter. Um, I think it's also fun to see the younger guys that I knew before they they made it to where they are, like Rod Clark, who um, is an assistant at Tennessee. Uh, he is was on the, the top 30 assistants under, you know, I think under 40. You know, he's such a big-time assistant coach, and he's worked for Coach Barnes. Uh, he, grew, you know, he has ties here to Kansas City, worked for Mocan. Uh, that's how he got started. So, um, you, you build, like, bonds with these guys, and then they become friends of yours. Uh, so when you see them all the time um, and you talk to them all the time, there, there's that bond there. But then there's, there's also those moments of, like, you kind of pinch yourself, right? When you go to Michigan State and you're going to watch a coach that you grew up watching as a kid and you've idolized and admired in Tom Izzo, uh, and you're meeting not just him, but, you know, like, the guy that's been underneath him um, for several years, for 25-plus years, that they've been such a tight bond together and and to have those conversations with the coaches after a practice and and building those relationships is is really when it 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 kind of comes full circle for you of being in in the in the game and in the sport for so long. And now you build these relationships with coaches and you see why they're so good at what they do. Uh, and you see how they protect their players in the right ways, but also have that that sense of understanding of what my job is and why I'm there and how you know it's important for them to have a relationship with me from a standpoint of making at this point in the game when their players are on the you know in the draft and there's a chance that they can get drafted. There has to be a good relationship there uh, across the board, and they're doing that with all sorts of teams. But that's when it, it gets really fun when you start to meet guys and and you really get a sense of. Um, building those great relationships with the coaches uh, over the years, and, and it's genuine, and and you know they're always there for you if you need them. That that's when it's really special.
1: I know it's not your, your area, but I bet that that Kim English is a real red ass to deal with, huh? Hell
0: yeah, you know, co- yeah. <laughs> Coach English, man. I just it's d- so crazy it's, though. It's, it's wild coach too. English. I know, and, and and Providence head coach, and it's so weird to me when it's like me and Kim have have had to, t- you know. Usually when we've talked in the past, right, it's been about you know our friends, you know, how's you know your parents doing you know what's what's how the how the girl's doing real talk now now it's like we'll we'll have conversations and it's like you know we're we're talking about players he's asking me my advice on things I'm asking his advice on things but it's great when obviously my college roommate my college teammate is a head coach uh in a league like the big east and you know Kim his success speaks for itself and he's such a bright intelligent mind basketball mind and and you know he's a great great coach great recruiter the whole bit and now he's in a different different you know Type of role where it's like, man, I I don't want to waste his time, just like I would any other coach, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's like it's it's Kim too, so it's that to me is um it's it's and it, when I remember going to see like his his um his practice when he was at George Mason, um and just sitting there thinking like, man, like he's so good and this is it's just so fun to see him in a different light, um and then he's he's so excited that I'm there. I feel right?
1: like it was yesterday that I'm watching Phil St. John at Kim English basketball camp, right? Right, but you could just see, but that, that's you could tell, like even when he was a player, and he used to come on the show when he was a player, and just all the way back from when you know he he, he had a stuttering issue and he and, and he didn't feel comfortable uh, giving interviews, and he kept giving interviews, and he got better and better. And by the time he was in a Mizzou, he was the best interview yeah. of any college player we ever had. Yeah, right, right. But you would see him and listen to him talk about basketball. And it was almost like you were talking to a coach, and then, and I know it's it's, hey, look, it's just one observation, but then you would watch the way he would interact with kids and the way he would run his camp. And I've been fortunate enough to watch my kids at a bunch of basketball camps. Like, oh, he knows what he's doing. Right. The organization, just everything, and he's just one of those guys. I know you hear that from a lot of different people, but like, you knew he was going to be a coach,
0: right? If he was going to pursue it,
1: he had all the tools necessary. To be a successful head coach
0: it was just a matter of when um you know that that right that, that, that was, exactly but you know Steven, like i also think it's refreshing when um let's take like brad underwood and eric musselman i have great relationships with and like you know that musselman
1: the, make you take his shirt, your shirt off when you talk to him <laughs> no unfortunately like, hey, Jerry, come here Jerry, right.
0: you get if you can't yeah you can't come <laughs> in my office unless you take your shirt off now but like those guys like, It'd like be a good I, icebreaker, it, though, it, I mean, would, it would be there. it would be you know and and coach underwood like like when he when he's he's got a voice and it's like demonstrative. I mean when he gets after a guy like you can, but but he, then you see them on the floor with their teams in in a practice and you see why that you know their guys look like love them you see why they love playing for them you see why you see where it connects and that's what makes it fun for me as a scout is to see like there is still that like hard coaching that's toughness that's like motivating and in, and trying to in, inspire a guy to go harder and do more and improve and all these factors. And there's so many other distractions now that coaches have to deal with and worry about for their players. But then you like you have the like, – I remember like in the mornings in, in October, if you go to an Illinois practice, Brad Underwood has practice at 6 a.m. Kim English is doing this early morning practice. You go in and you, you – Maybe that's Kim English yeah, right I now know. calling in. Is Kim hearing? hearing hey, Ben, right why right don't now? you come and
1: answer this phone?
0: So you go to a morning practice at, at Illinois and Brad Underwood, like he comes down and the players aren't on the floor yet. They're, they're watching f- f- uh, film or they're getting taped and, and Brad Underwood just comes down and sits down and just has a conversation with you. Um, And it's, that's, what's great. And and you tie into like, I work with Gar Foreman who, you know, was the GM of the bulls for so many years and Gar knows all these guys. So you start to tie in, you know, just how tight knit this, this industry really is at the end of the day of everybody kind of knows everybody, but there's, there's still, you know, a level of like doing your job and being, you know, you're a representative of the New Orleans Pelicans organization, and they look at you like that. You're, you're the, you're the, you're the team representative on campus, on site, feet on the ground, and you have to, you know, make sure that you're abiding by that. Um, and I take that very seriously. Um, it's something I don't take lightly, and I, I think that's what, you know, coaches they want to test you, especially the older coaches where you know, I'm, you know, when I five years ago when I'm coming into the league and I'm at, at one of their practices, I'm sort of thinking, who is this guy now to build those relationships over the years and have those relationships very meaningful for me.
1: You know, it's, it's early on in the process, but one of the things that stands out to me about some of these coaches we're talking about, we've already seen it. several examples from self and muscleman. And I think the early returns from Tang and from Dennis Gates, I think have their fan bases, hopeful that this is the way it's going to be but the transfer portal, right? And getting all these new players in and you're, you're trying to evaluate these players on the fly, not only as individuals, but how they fit together and the pieces, how they fit together. And and, and maybe that's why we've seen, okay, so I'll use muscle as an example that Arkansas is such a different team the past couple of years at the end of the season Mm -hmm. compared to the beginning of the season, because it feels like, He's, and not that they're trying to lose games or they don't care about winning in the non-con or early on in the season, but he's figuring things out because there's so many new pieces and he's figuring out, okay, this is this this combination works and and, and maybe this doesn't. And then by the time you get halfway through the conference season, he's got it figured out. And that's why Arkansas is different. Hopefully that's what we're going to see with Missouri mm-hmm. and that's what you're going to see with Kansas State with regular, that's what you see with Kansas because that's the game now. And so that's what's going to separate these coaches being able to do that on the fly and evaluate not only individual players, but how they fit together so they're playing their best ball in March.
0: Yeah. And I, I think when, uh, during the course of this, these, let's say these last three months, let's say since, you know, the end of April or the beginning of April after the national championship, you know, some time passes and then you start having these, di- these dialogues with coaches, head coaches, assistants, these campus visits and you know, it, it's a big topic of conversation, obviously, and it's something they're dealing with every single day with the NIL and the portal and the, the, you know, the jokes and the stories that you hear about, you know, just what it is and what they're dealing with on a day-to-day. Um, it's different. And sometimes I feel like I'm almost like a sounding board a little bit because I think there's enough trust there built where there's some venting going on. They know they can trust me with just what they're dealing with because it's a lot and it's different. And it's not necessarily why they got into it years back, right? You know, you're talking about, you know, Norm Roberts, who's been in the business for so many years, was a head coach himself. I mean, they're having to evolve, right? And they're okay with doing that. There's no problem. They've had to do it before in their careers. It's just trying to get a hold of it and trying to understand what it is and understanding their own selves in the recruiting process and how they're... Who do you trust, right? And that's that's what we deal with too. And
1: there's some older coaches that don't want to do it. No, and that's and why it, they're getting out. Exactly. they
0: don't want to mess with it, mess with it. Uh, and it's it's too much um, noise that they're and it's things that they're not about. And I, I I respect that, and I understand that, and I appreciate that. But those things, unfortunately, are not changing with where society is. Right. right? I mean, that's a huge part of what it is. Social media being a huge part of what this is. Um, parents and money involved and sometimes I know it's been talked about quite a bit of what Eli Drinkowitz said about you know money and and these players having to handle that and it it is true but at the same time like this is this is good I mean it's good for them to have a a, a being being compensated for being an athlete that is bringing a lot of money into the university and with that comes responsibility and you got to grow up and that's part of it
1: he, he he's he was a great coach but it doesn't seem like like a guy like Bruce Weber was in love. No, with where things were headed. Conzo like, Martin you know, wasn't when, in uh, love with yeah, it. Conzo yeah, right, Martin, right. he, yeah, you know, and and it just
0: great coaches and great motivators right. and great great teachers, but it's, I mean, a, different teachers, but it's a different game. And it, and I get it. I mean, I get the frustration behind it. It's it's taking away from what you know and how you run your program. But that's what it is now, and you can like any any coach would say this. It's so built off of your coaching staff too. Like if you're going to put all the pressure on yourself, you're not making use of your staff. And to me now, you're seeing coaches that are hiring staff that are willing and able to get a hold of that stuff, you know, to, uh, to understand what they're looking for, still identifying talent, still identifying the intangibles because they're doing the same things that we do. They're trying to identify who they want to bring in, who they can trust, who can fit the mold of their culture and their locker room and all those things. But then there's the other aspect that is new to them, which is dealing with NIL and dealing with how do these guys are, – are these guys just in this for the money? Are these guys really wanting to come here to win? Like, you're still evaluating that just like everybody is. Well, the
1: other thing that we don't talk about very much, but I hear not only in basketball but in football, why is he getting that much
0: money? Absolutely. It's the biggest how, question they're dealing with.
1: How, how come he got offered yep. that, and I only got offered this? Exactly. You don't think that causes problems? <laughs> Absolutely. You don't know what's going on.
0: Absolutely. And at the end of the day, the college coaches—they're not technically supposed to be dealing with anything, right. With an IL, you know. And
1: you can you imagine win- in the lock? Like if yeah. you guys were all making a different <laughs> am like, Whoa, hold on. Here.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you know, it gets talked about, right? And and most importantly, though, I think the biggest thing is the families that are connected to these players or agents that get connected to these players that feed them all this stuff. That's the, that's or the challenge. Or all the
1: reports about players being promised a certain amount, yeah. and then they don't get it.
0: And then they don't get it. and, and Or, right. or, which I've heard this plenty of times, they get to campus, they've signed their NIL, NIL deal, the package, they've, it's a contract. Uh-huh. They don't live up to that contract. They, you, have they, to, you
1: have to do this, the, you, you have to appear here, right? you have to go there. All of a sudden, you, don't do it.
0: you have a no-show to three different events, and it's in the contract that they can rip it up right in front of you, and they do that. I know who you're talking
1: about. I'm not going to say <laughs> it, but I know you're talking about. I mean, it's not just one guy. Right.
0: It's, it's 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 definitely been something that's been out there quite a bit. So, um, yeah. You
1: just showed up for everything, right? If you had, had If you to. would have had, I, NIL, I had you'd have to. been everywhere, right? It was a little different for me. Well, I I mean, if, yeah. if you would have been, you, you know. Yes,
0: absolutely. It's a part about... Growing up, leaving your parents, being, you know, getting to college, that's where you really grow up and become your own self, right? It's part of being in college. And you got to go to class. But, you got to go to your obligations. Okay, if,
1: yeah. So to come full circle with what you said about drink, that's, that—that's you know, when he got crushed for it because it was taken out of context, that was one of the points he was trying to make. Yeah. We're giving all this money to 18 and 19-year-old kids, but then we're not telling them how to handle it. Yeah. And we're not explaining to them the responsibility of it. And also, there comes along with all that. There's some responsibility, yep. and so he's just he was he was talking about how there should be more guidelines, uh, you know, and more guardrails because else, yeah. he was talking about the question was about. And let's be honest, that's something else too. That's that's going to be an issue of of players gambling, uh, you know. And hell, Alabama had to fire their baseball coach because of this. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so when you yeah. give an 18 and 19 year old kid a bunch of money, I know Jared Sutton, you were. a uh,
0: good upstanding young man if I'd have
1: thrown five hundred grand at you when you're eighteen years
0: old, I don't know where you would have done with it. Just being put on scholarship, I was like, what is this? <laughs> hey. like, I went from walk on to being on, on what is scholarship. This? I thought what is it was the greatest thing ever. What is given to me? Open oh, books, sti- right. I am getting some sort of stipend. What is right? this? But, but but that's
1: but that's yeah. a lot. That's yeah. what
0: he was talking about, right? Yeah, I, and I think too, and you know, I I get what Eli was trying to say and there are probably things, yeah, he's probably looking back in hindsight saying, okay, maybe I shouldn't have gone that far. But I think what he's trying to say. And I think so many times it's like you have to lean on one side of the aisle. And and many times, sometimes both cases can be true. One of the cases is NIL is good for college athletics. It's long overdue. Compensating athletes has been at the forefront of dating back to when I was in college, when this wasn't around, when you're seeing Phil Pressey's Jersey and Kim English's Jersey and Marcus Denman's Jersey, and the university is profiting so much of us winning 30 games and being on ESPN and and the business of college athletics and what college coaches were making when, you know, I know there's certain players that I played with, teammates of mine, that didn't come from great great means, and this is important now because these players can start to make money in college because it is a job. It is a job, full-time, full-fledged job to be a college athlete. Then there's the other side of that where that's great and all, but that doesn't mean we can't improve it. That doesn't mean the the restrictions and the guidelines to even the playing field and to make it a little bit, but to get a little, just get our grasp of it, get your hands on a little bit. Because right at this point, right now, I don't think it's sustainable. I just think there's so many things that have to be corrected, and it and it will, we'll get there. But it's the growing pains of this that um, I think are tough for for coaches. End of the day, though, coaches have to understand the days of you controlling. Everything that goes on in your program and anything you say goes, and if you don't abide by this, you're not your minutes are, those days are over. You're gonna have to somehow connect and think differently of, yes, players are more empowered than ever now. and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It still means you can coach and be tough and, and have those hard conversations with players and be honest and coach guys hard. That's okay. you can still do that. But you have to see this for what it is now. And it's different than it was in 1994. It's a little different now. And you have to be willing and able to coach in today's environment.
1: My final question before we wrap things up for this episode. This is a, this is a, uh, a recent story at uh, CBSSports.com uh, from this morning. And I think this is fascinating. It's, uh, Dennis Dodd wrote about uh, the Big 12 and uh, Brett Yormark, the very aggressive commissioner, pursuing Gonzaga and UConn yep. to try to expand the dominance of the Big 12 in basketball. And I'm just curious what you think of that. Gonzaga and UConn possibly in the Big 12 because it's, it's when the article describes there's been a mutual admiration between Gonzaga and the Big 12. But now there seems to be more, even more momentum for UConn yeah. Join the Big 12.
0: I love it. I, I think this is – I mean, I, I played in the Big 12. Good God, uh, think of that basketball <laughs> It conference. would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, I think, too, I, I've said this so many times. Like, the Big 12 needs to embrace – you always say, well, the Big 12 is the best league in – or one of the best you know leagues in college basketball, and it is. So embrace that. Like, you're you're having schools leave the Big 12 to go to the SEC, and so much is made about football and money, and I get it. Like, I totally understand that. But at the end of the day, the popularity of the Big 12 is in basketball, period. Like, no offense to the football programs in the Big 12, and, and I mean, obviously the history of Kansas State football, they just won the Big 12 last year, like, yeah, I'm not taking anything away from that, but let's call it what it is. The Big 12 in basketball, it always seems to shine year in and year out, and it, it was just Kansas at one point. Chris Beard was great for Texas Tech. Um, you've seen Baylor have so much success. Uh, you see, saw Texas have great success this year, even though they had so many things go on with Chris Beard. Um, you've seen now the, the adjustment the Big 12 is making in adding Houston and bringing Kelvin Sampson back to the Big 12. Like To me, there's so much potential with the Big 12 in basketball to take it to even another level where you're competing even more with the SEC and the Big East and the ACC. I love it. I, I, I'm all on board with this, and I, I said this when – I was a player back in the day when Mizzou was in the Big 12. Like, Big 12 basketball is big time. It's a great league. It's a great conference. It's got the best coaching college basketball in it. Build around that. Embrace that. Absorb it's. I know it doesn't match what the conversation is with football and money and the, and the financial part of it, but the popularity of it and the fan interest and the engagement and what college basketball and the Big 12 brings to to just the sport in general and college athletics. Build on that. Gonzaga is a great program looking to get to a conference out of the WCC where they can be more competitive. And then you got UConn, who just won the national championship, and they're a basketball school looking for a basketball Elite league. Elite basketball. Elite. Program. Yeah, exactly. So I I love this. This to me is long overdue, and I hope it I hope it comes to fruition. I have my doubts just because of what always holds this up, and that is college football and the money that it brings in, and that's what every athletic director sinks their teeth into and, but basketball to me, when it comes February and March, some of those ADs go, wait a second, basketball, this is where our fan engagement is. Why would we not build on that?
1: it could be a slight adjustment to the Jared Sutton travel schedule. That's right. Uh, That's, as, yeah. As, as happens. We'll see. Uh, but you know what? That's a lot of basketball we're throwing at you, but it's the house of hustle and we talk about basketball. So what do you want from us? All right. We want to thank Charlie hustle. You
0: love Charlie hustle. I you? love Charlie hustle. I got, so much, like, the vintage swag, new gear, like we just saw with the Nick Bolton t-shirt. They always come out. I, I'm always like, Nick Bolton how are they going to outdo themselves this time? And they always seem to do it every got time.
1: tiger arms with the football. I mean, I, I, I need that shirt.
0: The creativity.
1: Absolutely.
0: Mm, so good. Thank you, Jared Sutton, and thank,
1: thank you. you for watching and listening. This has been House of Hustle, and remember, Kansas City is for hustlers.